I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. And now, a dramatic reading by Toby Ball of items purchased on Amazon by podcast listeners through the Amazon link at CrimeWritersOn.com. I Spy Treasure Hunt, a book of picture riddles. Coolest Songs in the World, Volume 1. Mead Project Organizer. 10 Pocket Dividers. Sharpie Accent Pocket Style Highlighter. Superman, the 1948 and 1950 theatrical series on DVD. And Spalding Women's Bootleg Pant, Black Large. Yes, these items and more were purchased by podcast listeners who went to CrimeWritersOn.com and clicked on the link taking them to Amazon. A percentage of their purchases will go to this podcast. Best of all, there is no additional cost to the listener. Tune in again next time when you'll hear Toby say, High-speed HDMI cable, 15 feet. Sesame Street Play School Lullaby, Goodbye Elmo. And Ivory Raw Unrefined Shea Butter. Three pounds. Right click and bookmark it and do all of your Amazon shopping through crimewriterson.com or leave a tip in the jar by hitting the donate button. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On Serial Season 2, the podcast about a podcast and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime, and occasionally, yeah, we talk about other podcasts. Today we'll be talking about Serial Season 2, Episode 2, The Golden Chicken. And joining me here in the studio today, which is a super treat, is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, and licensed PI, Laura Bricker. Welcome back, Laura. Thank you. I had to get out of my house. I've been talking to my cats too much. (laughs) (laughs) Also joining me here in the studio is my true crime co-author, real-life husband, and all-around jolly guy, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hi, Rebecca. I like to think I'm your golden chicken. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> oh, off to a great start. Also joining us from his undisclosed location on the far edges of New Hampshire is Dwar novelist and possible special ops guy Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. 
Happy holidays. Happy holidays to you, too. All right. One thing I want to ask you all, just as a general survey, in listening to this episode, I started listening to it, you know, in my car, and then I transferred to, like, the Bluetooth speaker in my house, and I found that I really had to listen on headphones. Otherwise, I couldn't get into it. I couldn't really understand what was going on. Laura, am I the only one who had that experience with this episode? I had to listen a few times, and I did have headphones on this morning. Um, it, it definitely, there was a lot going on this week. Dense, right? Yes. Toby, did you have a dense listening experience this week? Uh, I, I definitely listened to it twice. I didn't have headphones on. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on. I thought it was pretty interesting. What about you, Kevin? I like listening in the car because of the, you know, the nice stereo speaker. I, it, when I was a teenager, I had a really great stereo. Now I have a clock radio in my car. So I listened in the car. And I don't know I, I, if it's dense. I, I mean, I think it was more. I, I didn't give this episode a high, as high a grade as episode one, and I know we'll probably get into that. So I think maybe the storytelling wasn't as great, and that might have been why um, it didn't hold your attention. Maybe I don't know. We'll see when we give the grades. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. The opening of this episode, Sarah Canning opened with a long narrative about the latest update in the Bergdahl case, the decision to try Bo Bergdahl at the general court level instead of the special court martial level. He now faces significant punishment potentially, but Sarah seemed to, I think, downplay the potential punishment that he could get. I'm wondering, Toby. A, what did you think of Sarah's explanation in that narrative? And do you have a reaction to the news of Bergdahl being tried in this, you know, more serious venue? I, I thought the beginning was fine. You know, she definitely needed to address it. There was no way around that. And then I think as being sort of, you know, trying to position herself as the definitive source for this story, I mean, she had to do more than just just report it. She had to have some kind of insight or something that other people couldn't just get from reading the AP story. So I thought it, I thought it was fine. And as far as you know going to a general court martial I don't know. It, it doesn't surprise me too much after listening to this episode and just seeing how much damage he did with that one, you know, seemingly small decision. So I, I guess it, it didn't surprise me a whole lot. I probably before I started listening to uh, this season of Serial would have thought it was a little much, but but knowing what we know after the second episode, uh, maybe not so much. What do you think, Laura, both of the storytelling device and of the news about Bergdahl's being tried in this higher venue? Well, I think for me, the storytelling device that she used here, it, it really didn't work for me this week. It I felt like really bogged down the opening, and I know she had to address it, but I didn't find myself, and maybe that's why I had to listen to it a few, a few times, I didn't find myself getting as drawn into the story right away because we were sort of getting this, you know, dissertation on what was going on with him for quite a while before we got into the actual action of the story. You know, I think Toby said prior to this episode, I would have been maybe more leaning towards, geez, this guy was, you know, a prisoner of the Taliban for five years. Is that enough to kind of mitigate what... Uh, you know, future charges he could face. I don't feel quite that way anymore after hearing um, kind of the scope of what went into looking for him. What do you think, Kevin? No, I think it actually was important to open with the latest. I mean, that's what Serial has been from the beginning is this real-time reporting. This was a big event that happens between episodes one and two. And I think for people 
that are just following Serial and not picking up the New York Times. This Serial is their source of information about this case. So I think she needed to address it to give a recap of the news and to try to put it into some context. I do think that it is actually very interesting the way this has been playing out in the military justice system. Look, there are three different levels of court-martial. You've got a, a simple court-martial, a special court-martial, and a general court-martial. Now, a simple court-martial is like misdemeanor kind of stuff. That would be the equivalent of that. A special court-martial is uh, sort of the higher level. It's stuff that um, you most likely would not be imprisoned for more than 12 months for. So some, you know, maybe some high misdemeanor, low felony kind of stuff. And this was the kind of court-martial that was recommended by the fact-finder in this case. And the fact-finder goes to... He's not the judge. He's he's called the... Oh, he's called the convening authority. The convening authority. And in this case, that was a four-star general at Fort Bragg. Right. And so he's going to make the decision. The convening authority says, okay, either you go to court-martial or you, whatever the other uh, options are. So to go to the highest level, the general court-martial, is significant because it's, it, it means that he does face significant jail time. You know, which is already on top of his five years as a POW. So I, I think that, you know, that is the key thing. The convening authority essentially ignored the report of the fact finder. And you've got two special, again, the, the charges, let's remember, there's desertion and misbehavior before the enemy. The first is desertion, which is actually a military definition for what that is. Obviously, he left his post. You know, he could be considered a wall. Or something else. In order to prove desertion, the JAG has to prove that he had no intention of ever coming back, as opposed to just walking away, which is very hard to prove. They never said anything would happen with his dog tags, but if he took his dog tags off and left them with this pile of weapons and stuff, that indicates that he had no intention of coming back to the Army. The other charge is uh, the misbehavior before the enemy. This generally is something where not just shirking your, your duty, but also perhaps some uh, acting cowardly, uh, not following an order uh, under battle. And again, I think he has admitted that he has done these things, and it's going to come down to, all right, what kind of punishment does he deserve? He did keep his dog tags. One of the videos that the Taliban shot of him after he was captured, they show his dog tags to the camera. So he was wearing those. That's interesting. That was, yeah. Yeah. One thing that I thought was interesting that Sarah remarked on was the people that met directly with Bo Bergdahl when he came back actually recommended a lesser punishment for him. And I'm wondering, as we, the listeners, listen to his story, if we're going to come to that same conclusion, if there's something about this man when you hear him talk that sways people. And I'm curious to hear what that is. She made a really good point. It's funny because the more people that do come in in contact with him, the more that they are sort of won over by him. However, the larger apparatus of the military and people who are you know, in the military, they all are very angry. And uh, you know, it's really interesting. You know, the point you, I, I don't remember hearing about this, but um, John McCain, who Sarah's right, is obviously the most prominent POW and probably the most the most politically powerful POW in the nation at the idea that Bergdahl would receive no punishment threatened a congressional investigation. Right. Well, I'll tell you, I have been in contact with a um, well-respected member of the JAG Corps, a lawyer for the military, that has asked that I not use his name, but that I can use his comments on the show. I actually spoke to him before this decision came out. 
His opinion as to why that special court martial was in place was because the Obama administration did not want to look, quote, like jackasses for having gone through the extent to rescue Bergdahl just to then put him uh, into life in prison. He said within the JAG Corps, a lot of uh, prosecutors and defense attorneys were pretty angry about that decision to do special court martial. When the general court decision came out, you know, I had, I asked him a question and, and said, is this because Serial came out? I saw some like articles about that online. And he believes absolutely it's because Serial came out. It could be the case. He said the convening authority probably learned of this. He uh, believed Bergdahl was trying his case in the court of public opinion, decided it had to put life sentence back on the table. You can only do that in general court martial. And then he adds, you know, personally, I'm pleased he's facing general court martial. I think it's the right move. Um, And he says this after hearing all the things that Bergdahl said about leaving. I think this sort of illustrates a central theme of this show, which is the gulf between people who've served and those of us who haven't. And And not just in the military justice system, but those of us who are sort of trained in the code and those of us who aren't? What do you think? I, I don't believe that Sir, the, the episode one affected the charges he was going to face, unless he contradicted himself in the in one of the interviews and said something to his interviewers that he didn't say to the fact finder in the in the army. Um, you know, I just can't imagine. And m- maybe Laura, is, as our legal expert here, would chime in on you know the idea that the guy who's probably most like a civilian district attorney would totally disregard. The report of, you know, the it was a four-star general who decided to send him to the to the general court-martial, and he did it after season one, episode one came out, and he also did it. We heard Sarah talk about the fact that Bergdahl didn't want to accept a plea deal because he wanted his story out there. This is really something I think that is a twist. I think that there is sort of this sense that the people involved thought this would work itself out. We'll put it away. Serial has changed that conversation, I think, inside the no, military. I don't think I – mean, he's a major general, by the way. I don't think that he thinks, oh, this radio program that you can only listen to on your phone has the power to change you know, the course of public opinion. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe we'll find out. Okay. Well, this episode was essentially broken into two parts. We had the Taliban's golden chicken point of view, and then we sort of had the U.S. forces point of view and what they did to locate Bergdahl after the dust one was initiated. Once again, we have Sarah relying on the reporting of a third party, Sami Yousafzai, um, a quote, very brave Afghan reporter. Um, I'm wondering if anyone has any problem again we're checking it again with this sort of secondhand reporting that we're getting here laura do you have any issue with sarah relying on other reporters for these narratives or do you think it's fine do you think it works i mean i i honestly don't know what choice she really had in this situation I, it, you know this is a pretty remote area and hard to get in touch with people and she did talk to the guy on the burner phone in the car in the supposedly safe neighborhood at one point um, you know, I think a lot of this is, like you said, secondhand. Um, but short of her going over to Afghanistan herself, I'm not really sure how she would contact some of these people. What about you, Kevin? Yeah, I think it was great. She was able to use Sammy to get to the Taliban fighter who she gave the pseudonym to. But I don't generally have a problem with her using the reporting of other reporters because she is so very transparent about that. And she actually pulled Sammy in and and sort it wasn't just sort of that she was reading his clippings. Uh, she really was d- talking to him as a guest and, uh, you know, picking his brain a little bit about, well, what do you think was happening with this and trying to get some context. 
Toby, did you have anything you wanted to add about Sarah's relying on Sammy's voice to tell the story? Do you have any reaction to that? How do you feel about Sammy himself? I think he's fine. I mean, I think for me, what what is good about it is that I think it does force you to think a little bit more about the fact that it is a story that's being told by somebody with a point of view. I think there's when there's just one narrator and it's the main narrator, you know, you could kind of fall into that sort of voice of God thing. And I think by having, you know, Sarah narrating some of it, but also sort of reflecting on what somebody else is talking about from firsthand, and they're even reporting something. Uh, so you're 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 getting like three steps of remove from the actual thing. Yeah, I think I think it's interesting. I don't I don't have any problem with it at all any more than I did, you know, the last season of Serial, where I feel like sometimes Sarah's point of view wasn't as questioned as as it could have been. Yeah. And I, I do think that we are starting to hear the details from the other side. That whole first part of the episode, as I mentioned, was more from the Taliban's point of view. And I think introducing that Taliban point of view as a narrator. Um, Laura, how do you did you find yourself starting to weigh both sides of the story, weigh both narrators? How do you even weigh those? And what do you think? Who do you believe more? Do you have a sense of that at this point? Yeah, that's really interesting. I actually did. Um, you know, as I was listening and she's talking about how the Taliban stories all match up and both stories don't match up. And I, I found it really interesting when they were talking about kind of the culture uh, aspect of this where he's their guest. So he is their hostage, but they're they're going to treat him civilly. And at first I'm like, yeah, right. And then I'm thinking, okay, my husband talked me into watching American Sniper a few weeks ago. And there's that scene where they're in an apartment where this guy has like guns hidden under the floorboards, but he's still offering them food and they're having a meal together. So that did ring sort of true for me. What do you think, Toby, about the differences in the narration between Bo Bergdahl, the story we heard in episode one, and, and this episode? You know, we heard that he didn't remember the, the dancing scene, for example. What was your take on that? The dancing thing was was strange, quite honestly. I, was, I, I couldn't quite figure out how that worked. But I think for the most part, taking a look at the two narratives and what what did the people who are sort of retelling those facts, what are they what are they trying to accomplish? With Bo Bergdahl, it, it would make sense for him to be trying to minimize the amount of trouble he can get into for what he did. I'm not sure what the Taliban what, – what do they have to gain by the narrative that they gave? You know, I, I don't think they really care a whole lot whether we think they're treated him well or treated him badly. I, I don't see what they have to gain there. It, it, it seemed to – it rang true to me. I mean the way they described – Bo's sort of demeanor and his depression and not wanting to eat or not wanting to drink and and crying and stuff like that. I mean, that seems to make sense to me, basically. So, Kevin, you know, in episode one, we got Bergdahl's narrative. Sarah left it basically unchallenged, although she promised us, you know, we'd get more later. In episode two, we're starting to hear those details that do undermine that narrative. The, the tent, for example, was it called? The, the, the Gucci, Gucci tent, tent yeah. yes. So many great cultural insights, I think, in this. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Do you think this is an intentional device to build oh, suspense in the story? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's a good way to, to, to start to build the conflict. And right in the first episode... Uh, you know, we have to basically take Bo Bergdahl's story at face value. And uh, it's good because it does set up the story. And now we go back over those same steps from a different point of view. If nothing else, you're getting the the start of the Zoom out where you see how other people are dealing with 
June 30th and July 1st. But I think from, from a, a narrator's point of view, to start muddying the waters on what actually happened, I think is is good. You start with, with Bergdahl's story, and then, and then you start to like, oh, well, I, I wonder if he did go to the tent. The Coochie tent. The Coochie tent. <laughs> you know, I'm just going to keep saying that because yeah, I like it a lot. That's a big departure from what his, his story is. If he was asking about police and Kabul and, and whatnot, and and if he had been drunk, which I think is highly unlikely, but I think it's also very interesting, again, how two groups of people or two people, you know, see the same thing and come away with different two different perspectives. I have a bit of a uh, devil's advocate perspective on here, and this is actually from a Redditor, not addressed to us, but a, a thread on Reddit that I thought was very interesting. Originally posted by a Redditor called I'm Blowing Bubbles. Once again, really great Reddit name to sort of throw in this conversation. Um, And what that person posted was, a false dichotomy is a logical fallacy. A false dichotomy or false dilemma occurs when an argument presents two options and ignores or leaves out other alternatives. It seems to me Koenig uses this logical fallacy as her trademark story hook. She began season one with the whole angle of either Jay is lying or Adnan is lying. She fails to recognize the option of both Adnan and Jay lying. In season two, she sets this up as Bergdahl shouldn't have been at his post but that is, is that his fault or the Army's fault? Again, ignoring the strong possibility that it could be both of their faults. I think she uses this narrative trick to get her audiences more hooked into a narrative by rooting for a side. The audience is supposed to leave episode one of both seasons almost rooting for a side. Is Adnan lying or Jay lying? Is Bergdahl or the military most at fault? It works in fiction, but it's dangerous in reporting. Sorry, I'm blowing bubbles. I did uh, shorten your comment there a little bit because it was very long. But I'd like to know, Laura... You're a journalist. First of all, do you think she's just setting up two perspectives? And is that dangerous? Is that a device? What do you think? Yeah, I actually, I noticed the same thing. And I took it like, you know, I remember season one and each week I was like, oh, I think Adnan's guilty. Oh, I think Adnan's innocent. And so, I mean, what she's doing is she's, because she's able to spread the story out instead of presenting both sides at the same time in the same news article or news piece, each week seems to be devoted to a different part of the issue. So you can really almost feel yourself really identifying with whatever perspective is being presented that week. And I did leave this week completely different in terms of what I thought than what I felt at the end of episode one. What do you think, Toby, of this idea that that she's using this device and that it might not you know, be the most truthful device? I'm just I'm curious as to your thoughts on that. Well, I think she's right on for the first season. I think that's yeah. I, I I think that's very insightful. I guess I don't feel like I have a handle yet this season about you know where she's going with it. Right now, it basically seems to be is Bergdahl is he telling the truth about what happened? I don't know if it's going to come down to that. I mean, after six or seven episodes, maybe maybe we'll be in a better position to 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 make a judgment. But for the first season, yeah, I think definitely that's right on. What do you think, Kevin? You're an you're a experienced storyteller who likes uh, the use of a good hook. I'm sorry. My mind wandered off after I blow bubbles. <laughs> and I wanted to know, who's bubbles? Um, uh, you know, I – thank you, Toby. Um, <laughs> wah, wah, wah. I, I don't know. I think it's too early to say. I don't think Sarah tells us what to think. I think she tells us what to think about. And I'll Ooh, leave it there. It was very, very deep. 
All right. So now I'm going to switch over to sort of the American side of things. But before I sort of make that transition, let's just leave with Bo responding to, I mean, it was cut together to sound like he was responding to what we had just heard from the Taliban said. Obviously, those interviews were not recorded in response to this. But one of the things that we, a piece of tape we heard is that uh, when he says, you know, no matter how many kung fu movies you watch or as long as you're a martial arts fighter, Toby, do you think that Bo Bergdahl is an expert martial arts fighter? Are we going to find that out? Or is this some sort of indication of a personality type? I'm just curious to know if that stuck out to you as well. Uh, I don't don't think it really matters if he's really good at martial arts. I I think it does indicate that it is a personality type, I think. I mean, again, it's hard to say anything very definitive based on listening to, you know, a couple minutes of, of him talking. Again, if this was fiction and you were writing his character... I think it's pretty easy to go from that statement, the statement about um, being Jason Bourne, and sort of seeing himself as like this this hero in this movie that is his life, you know, looking for ways in which he can be heroic. For me, at least, it's an easy jump to getting into Afghanistan, you know, having it in his mind that he's going to be a hero in some way and the way he's going to save his compatriots basically is by exposing, you know, the leadership's incompetence that puts him in danger and whether that's an actual problem or whether that's a problem that he kind of creates in his own mind so that he can try and rectify it, I think is, is for me, you know, one of the big questions so far. Like, like sort of a sense of like a narcissistic thing or a thing about grandiose thinking, that, that kind of uh, personality? Is that kind of what you're looking for? Yeah, maybe? I think so. I think so. I mean, I, again, I, I don't know if I have a better way of putting it other than I think he – it would seem to indicate and again, if I was writing fiction, this would be the way I would be playing it out is that he really – he sees himself as being part of a – an action movie. A larger for, story. Yeah. I, I disagree that, with that. How well, does he get to be the hero? How do you disagree, Kevin? <clears throat> I, I see those comments as being very one-offish, and I don't think we are meant to read literally into them that way. I think he's being descriptive. I don't think he says when he's saying, no matter how many kung fu movies, as if to say, I've watched a lot of kung fu movies, but I think... I think when he says that, he is addressing the doubter out there who says, well, why didn't you just fight them all off? I see. You did judo when you were in, in basic training. And so, again, I don't, the Jason Bourne comment, I think, uh, you know, got picked up by the mainstream media and I thought it was taken way out of context. Again, it, it wasn't at least going by. Wait, are you saying that we are the mainstream media? Is oh, that hell no. No, no, no. <laughs> but I'm talking NBC, Fox News. I'm talking all uh, the New York Times. Uh, the Washington Post, it was... I believe with the exception of Fox News, Bergdahl, it's actually the lamestream. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, Bergdahl's intention was to be Jason Bourne. It's like, that isn't what he said. Now, who knows maybe if that's what he felt, but going by what we heard, he said, uh, I needed to come up with a plan B because I can't walk back empty-handed. So I tried to do something like being Jason Bourne. So to get back to this statement, you know, I mean, I don't think he's saying, well, hey, I watched a lot of kung fu movies and, you know, it's like when people say, when did the cop just, you know, shoot the thing out of the guy's hand? It's like, he's not Wyatt Earp, you know, it's, uh, I, I just, I, I just think that, that we're not meant to take it like that. I think he's being descriptive. Two things. One is, I, I think that just, if that's the way you think about things, I think that's indicative of a certain mindset. Like, I don't think. In a similar situation where if I was being mugged by five guys, that my initial reaction would be like, well, you know, 
I don't care how many kung fu movies I've watched. I can't dispatch them. That that wouldn't be my mindset. It would be, yeah, I was screwed. There's nothing to do about it. And the other thing is, if these are really just sort of one-off descriptive things, which they very well may be, I think that brings into question what Sarah's trying to do as an editor by having those be two of the maybe 10 things that he said. And I was thinking about this too, which was she's got all this tape, right? How is she trying to paint Bergdahl? And I think it would be hard – if he's not talking about it, things that way all the time, I think it's hard to say that she's not trying to paint a picture of him in a certain way by pulling those things where he's kind of comparing himself or at least referencing sort of action movies. What do you think, Laura, about Bergdahl at this point, the way he's being painted? Are you reading into these comments at all? Well, I, I was a little bit, but I was going to say, even taking those comments away, I have to say, somebody that's been in the military, what, a few months, that comes up with this plan, and I, he's he's clearly not in reality, I think, to think, if he's really thinking, regardless if he's Jason Bourne or not, but if he's thinking, I can do this and pull this off, that doesn't really add up for me. It makes me think that there is some sort of defect here and something going on where he he does have that grandiose feeling about himself, regardless of how he's describing himself. His actions sort of lead me to that conclusion. Okay, so let's talk about the view from the American side of things. We heard all these voices of all these soldiers in this episode, uh, people in Bergdahl's platoon and not in Bergdahl's platoon, talking about the dust one originally supposed to be 24 hours per Bergdahl's plan, now going on for weeks. And um, some very vivid descriptions of the conditions out there. Kevin, I just would love to hear your thoughts about that part of the episode, about the descriptions of what the soldiers kind of went through when they were on this extended search for Bergdahl. They were in the suck. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it, it's funny, not to be trite, but Laura and I were waiting for you to unlock the door for us to come into the studio. Yeah. And it was kind of breezy. Yeah, it's cold out today. It was cold it's out. It's like 22 degrees or and something. And that really sucked. And I started thinking about all those guys in the platoon spooning at night I'm a big wuss, you know. I'm just, but I'm just saying they went through that for weeks and weeks. They they went through through being in, uh, like I said, full gear, battle rattle, running around in 100 degree weather, kicking in doors, and sleeping in the sand at night when it's freezing, all because of what they knew was a guy who walked off the base, and he wasn't supposed to do that. And then the Taliban started setting traps for some of this that, for the yes. researchers, which yeah. was incredible tape to hear that story about the season. The Green Berets. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, that that is – and, and, you know, there's, there's conflicting stories about whether uh, servicemen were killed during this time. And I think that Sarah mentioned that you might go into that. The military's official position is that no one was killed, although there are newspaper articles pointing to servicemen and died in that area. Um, but they won't say definitively whether or not anyone was wounded. And there was apparently an army captain who lost a leg, I think that they admit was in some way connected to the search. Wow. I mean, just that was really, you know, it wasn't like an action-packed kind of interview, but the details were presented in an understated way, but they spoke volumes. I thought it was very action-packed. I actually felt that was a very suspenseful part of the episode, even though you know, sometimes when you hear something or listen or watch something, and even if you've seen it before and know the outcome, you, it's it's done so well that you are kind of hoping it's going to turn out differently than, than you know it's going to turn out. You know, for me, the really, the story that I can't stop thinking about is the guy with the pants. That sort of very, very inhuman way to live for 19 days with, you know, 
diarrhea in one pair of pants and a hole in the other pair of pants. Did anybody else in this platoon had an extra pair of pants? I, I don't know. Maybe. Laura, what did you think of this part of the episode? What did you think of hearing these voices? And what did you think of hearing what these men went through on this search? I, have to, I felt really naive because I was just absolutely horrified when I heard these details. And I'm thinking, you know, like Kevin said, I can't get up and actually function without taking a shower in the morning. And these people are having no shower for 19 or more days. Um, and it, it goes back to what you were saying earlier, those people that have family members or experience with people in the military and those who don't. And I had a very... Uh, lively conversation with a friend of mine at a party last weekend, and she has a great number of people in her family that are in the military. I was talking about this case, and she said, they're all in horrible conditions. And that's not something that I was thinking about. I was thinking, oh, they're they're in a camp, and they have some things at their disposal. And listening to this, I was blown away. I, I will tell you, uh, this is just before I come to you, Toby, I want to tell you about an email we got from a listener from Australia who actually has um, a little bit of concern about as being as interested in this season as she was in the previous season of Serial because of exactly that. She said that this is a uniquely American story because of the way Americans relate to their military service and their military members and that sort of code of black or white, right or wrong doesn't exist, especially as she she noted Australia. I don't want to say it doesn't exist in any other country, but she said, you know, we're more nuanced about the way we think about service, even people who have served. There isn't this sense of you're right or you're wrong, you know, you abandon, you know, and she thinks it's uniquely American, which I found very a very interesting perspective, and that's probably a little bit of what you encountered at the party. It's what I encountered in this email from this JAG guy, this sort of lack of gray area, which happens if you are really connected to service. So, Toby, in this part of the episode, hearing these descriptions, hearing these soldiers talk about what they went through, I'd love your thoughts on this. I think I think it was the meatiest and most substantial tape we heard. Yeah, it's eye-opening, and uh, it's certainly horrific what they had to do to go out and try and find somebody who, as uh, one of the people says, was already in Pakistan. I think another aspect to it is they talk about how Everything else they were doing just stopped. So every day that they're searching for him is a day that they're they're losing ground with everything else they were doing. And they're also – all this sort of hearts and minds stuff that they were trying to do is being subverted too because they have to go into these houses and kick down doors and have women lift their veils and all this stuff, which is completely you know, submarining all the efforts that they've done up to that point trying to win hearts and minds. If you were one of those soldiers and you're both going through sort of the deprivation that you're going through as part of this, and then you're also seeing that you're, you know, you're losing ground every day in these goals that you were trying to accomplish, it would be, you know, physically and psychologically very difficult. If you ask me like, okay, well, what happened when after the dust one? What did these other guys have to go do? There's, I could not imagine the actual story. In my mind, it's kind of like uh, they're walking off. They're going into. The, they're checking this area. They go back to base. Maybe they it's get cold. A hot, they go back to this. Yeah, maybe it's cold. They get re, you know to, to basically be outside of the gates for days and days on end. And just you know, yeah, everyone's in bad conditions. But these, there's no respite. It's like fighting a forest fire for days and days and days. You're just full blast the whole time. You can see why these guys are mad. You know, I mean, I get pissed when I have to go collate the stuff at the copier. They're mad this, enough that they yeah. thought about killing him when they found him. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, because that was really physically, mentally 
rough on them and super dangerous from a military aspect. What did you think about that detail that it's the search for Bergdahl that may have been the thing that triggered his capture? Yeah, again, you know, sort of this domino cause and effect. The speculation, first of all, that, you know, the first foot patrols going out asking, have you seen a soldier wandering around? You know, maybe the kids who got chocolate tipped off the adults and the adults tipped off the Taliban. That very well could have happened. Again, which might explain why the guys on the motorcycles just drove right up to Bergdahl. Or again, you know, they could have just been passing. They Apparently, Sammy, you know, never got sort of an answer to that question. However, the fact that they were going full bore all the time, kicking in doors, indicated to the Taliban that maybe this guy who says he's a private is doesn't look like this is somebody who's not valuable. Right. They didn't get the idea that this is what a dust one is. Right. And that might be part of the mystery that we get to later. And um, Toby, I want to come to you for a second and ask you, because you were talking about the hearts and minds thing. And I think you were referring to the soldiers having to ask the women to lift their veils so they could make sure that they weren't keeping Bergdahl in one of these homes dressed as a woman. I think that there is some interesting cultural stuff Sarah is sharing as part of her storytelling here. And I, I think that the description of the tribal guys at the beginning and how they sort of have never seen a Westerner, so they, you know, wouldn't know, you know, what to think about, you know, somebody with blue eyes or somebody who may or may not be drunk. And it's also interesting timing, I think, given the cultural conversation right now, the larger conversation. Do you think this is an opportunity, this, this telling this side of the story, Sarah calling the Taliban on the phone is an opportunity that she's taking advantage of for Americans to learn something about a whole group of people that we frame a certain way in political debate most of the time? It's an interesting question. You know, in some ways, I I thought it was good and kind of brave to be talking to them. Also, to a certain extent, I mean, the Taliban, I guess I would hesitate to try and generalize the way she's looking at the Taliban to Muslims in general, because I don't think as, as sort of soft as she was with the Taliban. I mean, they are not they're not representative of Muslims or of like good people of any stripe as far as I can tell. They're vicious mostly to their own people. We have soldiers there who are fighting against them and so it goes to them as well. So, you know, I kind of mixed feelings about it. I'm generally very, very supportive of any attempt to try and shed light on other cultures, uh, certainly paint Muslims in a more uh, empathetic light than we generally get in the media. The Taliban as sort of your exemplar is a little weird to me. Um, And I don't know, did they ever talk to people who weren't Taliban who were just sort of Well, I think we heard that secondhand, right? We heard that secondhand through the Taliban and through Sammy about sort of the tribal people and sort of the way they negotiate their lives underneath this sort of Taliban rule. I mean, it's it's a very, very complicated situation, obviously, but... You know, I even think hearing details like the tent stuff, like the sort of backwards thing that the army had to do by kicking in these doors. I don't know. I just think it's a really interesting opportunity. I think the misconceptions about Americans, that they're generally drunk and that they know karate. Yeah. I thought was was pretty interesting. It was interesting. Laura, did you hear anything in sort of that part of the episode where we were hearing about, you know, the the tribal guys and their sort of the way of life and the thinking? Did, did it sort of occur to you that Sarah is trying to open a window that we don't usually get to look inside of? 
I didn't think of it quite like that. I was just really struck by the like Toby was talking about the details of their reaction to Bo. The I, I really loved the shiny cat baby with blue eyes or small cat baby, um, and just how it was the, describing it like children that had caught an animal. Like this was sort of like something they hadn't seen before. That they it was that was really interesting to me. It was really interesting to me, and it was interesting to me to hear about how. There's a lot of activity, obviously, in Afghanistan at this point. A lot of high-tech artillery, machinery sort of flying through the air literally. And that there are people that are still culturally so isolated right in the middle of all that. I find that really, really fascinating. What about you, Kevin? Yeah, I'm not sure the goal here was to open a civil rights or social understanding conversation. I I think the details are there because they're necessary for the story in order to understand Again, why he's the golden chicken, how amazed they were that he just happened to walk into, of all the gin joints in all the world, walk into theirs. You know, I remember Sarah getting a lot of grief during episode one by journalists of color that accused her of being the white girl going on safari in the Korean girl's life, you know, like, hey, oh, what did she think? Well, you know, what she says, the, the diary was like so girly. Well, what did Sarah think it was going to be? Uh, and, and getting accused of sort of uh, meandering through Pakistani culture. So I, I, I just, you know, I, I don't think that's what she was doing. I, I think it's kind of dangerous to go into. She, she's trying to, you know, bring a, about understanding between right. uh, cultures. Is I, I just think she's she's telling the story, and I think she's got to underline the differences in order to do that. I, I think, though, agreeing with Kevin, but I think the the big difference is that if you saw this on NBC or CBS or, or Fox News or whatever, I don't think the Taliban would be given. You know, sort Time. of an equal equal standing with with the American as far as hearing their stories. I thought it was brilliant that she actually reached out, tried to reach out to somebody in the Taliban. Most no, most journalists would say, "Oh, well, that's you know, that's the other side of the world on the moon. They're, they're not accessible." Our, quote enemy. You know, we can't. Right. There can't, is that not sort of quote set. enemy. It is our, our enemy. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I'm I'm yeah. saying I'm saying quote just in terms of like the vernacular. It's like the you know there was so much, especially at that point in time, 2009 to that. It's like. The heightened rhetoric around the enemy versus the not enemy, it's definitely evolved. Now it's about ISIS, I think, more than the Taliban. Yeah. I mean, we've heard these stories recently about how the Taliban even thinks ISIS is horrible. You know, it's, it's really, really strange the way that that's evolving. But actually, that brings me back to something that you said. And one of the criticisms I remember from Serial Season 1 that I remember actually sort of thinking myself, that was a question for me, was Sarah's disbelief at components of racism in the Adnan Syed case. Remember, Deirdre Enright says to her, you know, there are things about the narrative of this case that smack of racial undertones. And Sarah's like, hmm, I don't know. And there was a lot of criticism about that pushback because people who live in Baltimore, who have like sort of been on the other side of this system, and certainly we're seeing it now uh, more so than ever, are very much aware of racial issues in the Baltimore justice system in particular and how they're used by prosecutors. That takes me to a criticism I've seen of Sarah this week, which is that she doesn't seem to have... Some people say, this is not me, this is somebody who sent us a tweet in this regard. I've seen it on Reddit. I've seen it in some news sources. What is exactly her attitude toward the U.S. military? Does she not regard them with the reverence that she should when she says things like... Maybe I wouldn't say that I would kill him, but I guess I understand where they're coming from. Is she showing 
a bias about feelings about the military when it when, when she's telling the story. This is the criticism I've seen. And that's sort of where I want to draw that connection right there. And I'd love to know, um, do you have a sense of what Sarah, how she feels about the military? Has this occurred to you at all in the wake of this criticism? Yeah, I mean, I, I there was one comment that she made this week that I was I was kind of like I I cringed a little bit, and it was after this horrific description of the conditions these soldiers were going through during the search, and she says something like, "Well, you know, so maybe they should just like suck it up and stop being crybabies." Or I can't remember the exact wording. You're in the um, military. This is what you signed up for. Yeah, along those yeah. Lines, right? And I was like, I I cringed a little bit at that comment, and then she went on. Um, I don't know if it's so much a bias. I did note later on. I I almost again I felt very naive. But it was interesting, you know, getting into um, when she was talking to the guy, uh, Jason Dempsey, about just these different groups in Afghanistan and these very nuanced relationships between the groups and how we really didn't know anything about them and the spider web of connections we could never untangle. I think that was for people like me who have more of a superficial understanding of our whole mission in Afghanistan, that was really enlightening. It was like the local politics of Afghanistan play such an important role. We haven't even scratched the surface. That, yes. That's hard. Yeah. Toby, what do, what do you think about, I mean, I don't think any of us know what Sarah's attitude toward is, is toward the military. And you know, she's a journalist. She's probably just asking questions. But did you get the sense that there were things in that episode that people who are more black and white would jump on? And um, what do you think? Well, I think there's a sense that when you're writing or reporting about a group that you don't belong to, that people in that group can look to find things that you're misrepresenting or assumptions that you're making, perhaps legitimately, is that, well, if you haven't been there, you can't really comment. Or if you haven't been there, you really don't understand. And I don't think that's a fair standard, really. And I do think, and this is probably what that uh, Australian person was getting at, was that as a civilian, it's really hard to criticize the military without getting it thrown back in your face pretty strongly. So I, I, I think she's going to run into that issue, which is if she is critical of the military, especially in a situation like when we're, we're fighting the Taliban, it's like, well, you know, whose side are you on? And I don't necessarily think that's legitimate, but I think that's kind of the reality. Kevin, what do you think? I don't know if Sarah has revealed a bias towards or against the military Yet, I was struck by the same passage that Laura was about, okay, I know what you're saying. You signed up for this. I actually think that was the defense of the military, which is like, yes, they did sign up to do some dangerous things, but this is way above and beyond running around and throwing yourself into pale mail into any sort of uh, you know military situation. I think what was really most telling was the fact that one of the guys went back to base and shot himself in the foot. Well, I know, but that was ruled an accident, correct? It, well, yes, it was. However, like you said, everybody else said it was a statement. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. Are you supposed to take your weapon into the bathroom with well, you? Did they say it was a statement about that he did it on purpose or that it was a statement as to how completely wiped they were? That, that it was how we don't really wiped know. they were. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think you can draw a lot of conclusions to that. Yes, the soldier that she interviewed said the army said this was an accident. But, you, you, you know, I mean, would it surprise anybody after we heard 20 minutes of not the pit of hell, like, oh, we had a barrel full of shit that burned and it was really dusty. But, you know, being out there, their clothes are falling off their body and that, you know, they're getting just a few hours of sleep day and day on end that, you know, it's just like. 
Bergdahl, you want to take a hike? I want to take a hike. Well, one of the things that I think I would like to point out to our listeners, and maybe this would be good source material into Sarah's, I don't know, I don't want to say it informs sort of how she feels, but certainly I think looking at a reporter's previous reporting can be really interesting. There's an episode of This American Life called Good Guys. It's episode number 515. You can find it at their website, thisamericanlife.org. Act four of that episode is about, in 2009, a U.S. soldier gets in touch with This American Life. He's getting ready to deploy to Afghanistan. Basically, he says he's joined the army and he wants to go to Afghanistan because he wants to kill someone. And Sarah's story, she's the one who reports this story um, and talks to him, is interesting. But she also says this. She says, take a moment to compile all your stereotypes of a public radio producer and now apply them to me. You're right. I'm exactly who you think I am. I'm a peaceful sort. I don't come from a military family. I've not been in a lot of bar fights. I haven't lived in the South playing violent video games. This makes me very different, she says, from this soldier. And then she sort of reports it from that lens very openly, very transparently. I remembered that when I was listening to this. And I thought, to me, she's outed herself as someone who doesn't get it and really is just trying to learn. I think someone like that is going to make mistakes, I think, in what they say and it's sort of the, the looseness. And I wonder if maybe she should have done a little bit of that, you know, self-revealing stuff in this. I don't know. I don't know if it would have helped or hurt her. Probably hurt her. Probably can't win either way is probably what I'm guessing. Probably not. I mean, I think it's good to acknowledge that you are not the omniscient narrator like in, in, uh, in detective fiction. Because that not that the first criticism she, she would get afterwards? Yeah, you wrote this, but you don't know what you're talking about because you're a New York liberal or whatever. So she's coming out and saying, yeah, that's who I am. Let's get on with the story. All right. I want to go back to the Zoom analogy. We heard in episode one, Sarah's promise that the story gets bigger and bigger. I think this is a good place to sort of check in on where we're at. The way that she did it in this episode, which was really clever and timely, was she used that analogy about the Star Wars at at Walker, <laughs> the sort of machinery of the military, and then these little ants just sort of like walking between the legs, you know, completely you know, able to do their business without the even affecting the ad at Walker. You know, she used that, that great analogy there. Toby, is this conversation about that Star Wars ad at Walker perhaps the foreshadowing of the bigger Zoom, the giant apparatus that, you know, none of us can see, or the little ants on the ground that none of us can see? You know, what do you think this was all about? I, I guess I didn't read much more into it than than just that you have this sort of advanced, huge American military machine and it's trying to do what it's trying to do in this case find Bergdahl and you have these extremely technologically further back people who just kind of go about their business and and in this case they're moving him around and changing his outfits and getting him to Pakistan and you know for all the technology and all the power whatever there's really the military doesn't have a whole lot going on. So I didn't really see it as foreshadowing some later revelation. But I, again, I could be wrong on that. I, I think one of the interesting things about that analogy was anybody who's seen Star Wars or has children who've, with whom you've watched it dozens and dozens of times, the Adat Walker is a very poorly designed for the terrain on which it's put. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, it's just it's the wrong machine to bring to that planet because it's so easily defeated. You know, it's just it's, it seems almost absurd in a way. Anyway, Laura, what did you think of that part of the episode? I, you know, I'm trying to find the meaning in this Zoom um, analogy that she used when I'm listening, and I'm still going back to thinking about 
all the different people and um, places that are touched by this one action. And one of the things that I I thought was interesting and I kind of flagged as I wonder if this is going to come up again is when Jason Dempsey was talking about how the mission had sort of languished in Afghanistan and the Taliban reorganized right in the area where Bo went missing. And I'm wondering if that is going to play into the bigger picture. You know, I'm also thinking about, you know, when they were talking about the families getting word as to what's going on. I expect we're going to hear from some families at some point, and that's going to be another piece of zooming out and all the people that were affected. What do you think, Kevin? I think I'm going to disagree with Toby a little bit on this. I do think this is an indication or, again, another step towards that zoom out, because I don't think when she was laying it out that she meant the farther that she zooms out, the now this affects 10 people and now this affects 20 people. And, you know, the cast of characters gets bigger, like Game of Thrones or something. I do believe she means that the consequences get bigger and bigger. And so I think that this is, again, just a little bit of the stepping stone up to what could be the next thing, which is, yes, we have this great military apparatus that is moving around but can't see what is happening on a granular level right beneath it. Now, I, I think, that, you know, once we get to episode seven, eight or nine, looking back, we might say, yeah, that was a signal that we're zooming out again. It looks like episode three is, sounds like it's going to be about Bergdahl's time in captivity. It may not be about this, but I, I think that that's where it's going. I think that's where the zoom is starting to come into play. OK, so we've now are two episodes in episode two. We did this last week, so I'd like to do it again. Kevin, I would like you to on a letter grade scale, please. <laughs> Not five out of seven, not, you know. I'm going to give it a B minus. Okay. I'm going to give it a B minus. I thought it wasn't this episode as good. Of this, ep- this episode of Serial, yeah. I thought it dragged a little in the, in the middle. I guess it's supposed to be a, a, a side-by-side tale, one of the Taliban and one of his platoon. And I don't know, there's something about it that was just, something about it wasn't clicking for me. But n- not a bad episode, but not as good as episode one. Laura, what about you? How do you grade this episode of Serial season two? Oh, boy. I, I'm going to go between a B and a B plus. Um, the the beginning just was so slow for me. Uh, but Would it I, made a difference if she had done that at the end? Yes. Okay. I feel like if she had jumped right into the story, because the story was so powerful, hearing from these soldiers that were out there searching for him, that just was such a captivating part of this episode. But the delay in getting to the action really affected um the episode for me. What about you, Toby? Would you like to give this episode a grade on a letter scale, please? Uh, I'd give it an A minus. I, I thought it was really interesting. I, I'm enjoying this season more than I enjoyed the first couple of the first season. You know what? I actually agree with you. I give it an A minus as well. I think that what's difficult for me, though, is I'm really comparing every episode of Serial to everything else I listen to. <laughs> and to me, like a bad episode of Serial or a bad episode of This American Life is like a horrible episode would be like a B, you know? So I have to be a little bit more, I think, um, harsh in my grading. It was not as strong as last week's, although I think it could have been. I think the tape was great in this episode. The tape of the soldiers, those in-person interviews she has with those soldiers is great. What was difficult for me was that there were so many people in this episode, and they were all men. And a lot of them sounded alike, and it was difficult for me to figure, remember, like, who's Jack Dem- Oh, who's that guy? I just need to sit down and listen, and that's not something I'm used to doing with podcasts. I'm used to vacuuming and listening. So that's, you know, that's why I kind of give it a little ding for me. The, the thing that, like, I was, felt let down about was, like, what was the best part of episode one? This is Sarah. Hello, Taliban. Yeah. Like, I <laughs> thought that that would have been, I was really kind of disappointed that there wasn't more sort of that wonder and adventure about 
you know the bizarreness of reaching out to the Taliban. I mean, remember the the trip with uh, was it Dana? Yeah, going down crab, to Jay's house. Crib. Yeah, you know, I mean, that whole car, you know, that that whole like, making the sausage thing was really interesting. And I, I mean, I, I we get a little bit of the the burner phone and the right. thing dropping out. But I, I don't want to say it seems so joyful at the end of episode one. We were like, wow, that's going to be the best part, and it really. You know what? I actually do think that for me that made a difference too. I do like hearing the transparency about the reporting and how they're doing what they're doing, and I think she's trying to do it. But I think that all the ways that she's transparent, it's really just explaining away bad tape quality. She's like, oh, his phone kept dropping out and this kept happening. And we heard that with the Mark Bull tape last week. And we're not getting the how Sarah feels about calling the Taliban, which I think that would really add something. In 13 or 14 years, uh, uh, have you ever heard on any media outlet an interview with a Taliban fighter? No. I can't think of one. I don't think people even thought about like, well, let's call information and get you know, uh, some Taliban-y on the phone. Taliban-y? I think that's, I think that's the proper term. We'll I have think to, that's right. Thanks, Toby. Yeah. Okay. I, I'm, I will say, and I don't know if you guys are having this experience, I am extremely afraid of cultural missteps in talking about this season of Serial. Yes. I said coochie tent three times. Is that a pejorative term or is that just what it's called? I don't know. No, I think I think that is actually what they call it. I, I think know. the Haji shop is will actually a microaggression. Will we find out later though? That <laughs> it's a fun word to say though. I know it's so it's so. so I think great. weren't they aren't they the coochie right the nomads? Isn't that what they? Have to, how many you listen to it seven times? Don't you remember? I know. All I can hear it, about is that the West Wing, the um, the country was Kumar, and the West Wing were the, the, the episodes where they you know assassinated the leader, and they called the people the Kumari, which sounded to me more like a Star Trek species of planet uh, inhabitants than an actual group of people who live on Earth. I thought that was a little bit culturally insensitive, and I am a little afraid of stepping into that territory. Toby, what were you going to say? Well, I just you know a lot of the names for for people and things are given by their enemies. Right. And I was actually at this party I was at last night, I was talking to my friend who's Greek, and she was explaining to me that the term Greek is actually uh, a Turkish derogatory term for for Greeks who call themselves Hellens. Hmm. You know, Greek is Hellas. So whenever you're calling them Greek, you're sort of going into this cultural bad-mouthing from the Turks, which I I, I had no clue about. Yeah, I think that happens to all of us all the time. So, listeners, if we say something that offends you, we probably don't know what we're talking about. So please forgive us. We're Send pretty us an email. stupid. <laughs> we're living in New Hampshire. <laughs> you know? Send us an email to crimewriterson at gmail.com. Set us straight. Maybe we'll read it on the air. Okay. Let's move on now from The Golden Chicken, Serial Season 2, Episode 2, and get on to my favorite part of the episode, a little thing I like to call Crime of the Week. <laughs> So this week, Martin Shkreli, the 32-year-old pharma company CEO, best known for jacking the price on a life-saving drug by 5,000%, was arrested for an alleged Ponzi scheme he ran at his old hedge fund company. Slow clap. (laughs) The FBI says at one time he took $3 million from investors when he only had $300. Shkreli gets even less sympathy because of the smarmy way, I think we all agree, he handled the price gouging scandal. He went on TV and Twitter. He sort of acted like it was his right. That's what anyone would do in my position. So here's the question, Toby. I'm addressing you first. So far in Serial, we've been introduced to two characters who may or may not have done something very, very wrong, but their personalities, we think in Bo Bergdahl's case, we know in Adnan Syed's case, make us somewhat sympathetic to them, you know, sometimes on and off, maybe more off as far as you're concerned, <laughs> Toby, is in Adnan's case. But isn't this Shrelia situation the opposite situation that we are so willing to throw him under the bus 
because he seems like such a horrible person or, as Kevin would say, a total douchebag? What do you think? Are we, are we giving this guy not a fair shake because he comes across like a, like a really bad guy? Yeah, to a certain extent, just because we don't know anything about him. But the stuff he did was just so over the top. I'd be interested in hearing what kind of mitigating factors there are in his life that would make me think that that was at all a decent way to act. Mitigating factors like affluenza, something like that? Yeah, affluenza. Yeah, he's, you know. Is it, is it just me or does he look like the, uh, the guy who plays the young penguin on Gotham? You know, the kind of greasy looking, you know, smirky. Kind of, you, you just want to slap his like face. Like type, typecast as the villain in every John Hughes 80s movie. Yeah, yeah, it's like, what a dick, you know? Oh, well, uh, are you not giving him a fair shake because I'm of not, how he looks, because how he, how he comes across? Maybe. Look, you know, the difference, I think, between Adnan and Bergdahl's, we, we, we sort of know him, is that at, the two of them have a, a, a little bit of charm and charisma, and I think, to some extent, some self-actualization. There seems to be at least a a fraction of humility about their situations. Whereas with this guy, it's the absolute opposite and just thumbing his nose at the rest of the world. And so, yeah, I I am much more likely to be sympathetic to a guy who may be a killer but is a nice guy and seems to feel really, you know, I don't bad about it, or you know, I, 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 as opposed to some guy who just is unrepentant. I, th- I, I think that that's probably w- why I feel that way. I don't have to like be on the jury, but uh, you never know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what do you think, Laura? Are we giving this guy not a fair shake because he seems like a total douchebag? Well, you know, some people just don't even deserve a fair shake. Um, you know, when the FBI is tweeting out making fun of this guy after they arrested him, I don't yes. know if anyone saw the tweet, um, breaking no seizure warrant at arrest of Martin Shkreli today, which means we didn't seize the Wu-Tang Clan yes, album. the one that so, he spent a gazillion dollars on. I think then, it was $2 million or something. Yeah. So, uh, you know, good luck uh, in jail. I don't know if they're going to play the Wu-Tang Clan there or not, but... Uh, Maybe they'll have a little jailhouse band or something. It would, you know, it'd be one thing it was like erectile dysfunction drugs, <laughs> you know, but it's like an HIV drug. I mean, it just, I mean it's like so it's like horrible. a crime against humanity. I mean, you know, it's just horrible. I don't know. Where was their board of directors when this was going on? I think bad guys need their comeuppance. Well, you know what? I think that this crime of the week has restored harmony to what has otherwise been a little bit of a contentious episode. So I'm really glad we talked about it this week. Let's do a group hug, guys. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and we are going to end it on that note. Laura, how can people find you on Twitter? At Laura Bricker. That's L-A-R-A. L-A-R-A, like Dr. Shivago. Thank you so much for coming all the way over to the studio today to join us. Thanks for having me. I had to take a break from my baking this week. (laughs) And she arrived with no scones, by the way, just an FYI, guys, and no Santa hat cheesecakes. Before I let you go, Toby, how can our listeners find you on Twitter? At Toby Ball NH. Thank you so much for joining us with your always very interesting take on everything. Thank you. And Kevin, how can people find you on Twitter? I remember now. It's at Kevin P. Flynn. <laughs> it's good to know your memory's been restored. Thank you so much for lending us your smooth pipes this week. Oh, well, you're very welcome. And if you want to send me a tweet, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. That's R-E-B-L-A-V-O-I-E. Our little show is also on Twitter. We're at Crime Writers On. So if you've got questions you'd like us to answer, tweet us or leave a comment on our Facebook page, Facebook slash Crime Writers On Serial. You can also send an email with your questions and comments to crimewriterson at gmail.com. Send us a voice memo if you'd like. Maybe we'll play it on the show. 
Our theme music was performed by Rocksteady Freddy and the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. You can find out more about all of the crime writers at our website, crimewriterson.com. While you're there, check out our blog. Do some shopping with our Amazon link. You can even bookmark it if you want. It's a great way to support this podcast by buying the things you would have bought anyway. You can also check out our brand new Buy Our Books page. We've posted links to all of our books on Kindle and an actual book form, including all of Toby Ball's books. I recommend starting with The Vaults. It's incredible. Lie After Lie by Laura Bricker is there, Kevin and my upcoming book, Dark Heart, and Kevin's new historical nonfiction book, American Sweepstakes. If you have a lover of history and politics in your life, you should buy them that book. It would be a great holiday gift. You can also send in a small donation if you'd like to support this podcast. The donate buttons are right there on the homepage at crimewriterson.com. But if you'd rather help us out in a less tangible but equally valuable way, leave a review on iTunes. We've been on the iTunes charts all week long, and that's because of listeners just like you and the great reviews we've been getting. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. Leave us a review, make a donation, buy stuff on Amazon, but most important, tell your friends that you love this podcast. We will catch you next week. I will ask you, though, what do you want for Christmas? What do I want for Christmas? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I was talking to my wife about that. I don't really know. I've got everything that I want. Ah, bullshit. Aw, <laughs> sweet. Maybe you could go to the Haji store and pick out something. Just because other people are genuine and sweet doesn't mean that it's not, you know, authentic. Okay, Kevin, what do you want for Christmas? I want uh, I want to get some new uh, dress shirts and neckties and stuff like that for my new job. Do you want some new trousers and slacks as well? <laughs> 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 Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details.